Every year after Thanksgiving, we stop and take the Sunday right after Thanksgiving to come together and have communion as a way to give thanks to God for sending his son to come and save us from our sin. Now, some people have mistakenly believed that the Lord's Supper or communion, as it's also called, is the same thing as Passover. Now, it is not the same thing. If, you, if we read carefully in the scriptures, we can pick all this up in, uh, let's see, Matthew 26, Mark 14, and Luke 22 is where all of those um, passages are laid out for us, and also 1 Corinthians 11 that we'll be in today. You'll see that it says they had the Passover feast, and then after the meal, Jesus instituted this thing, this new thing called the Lord's Supper. And when he began this and instructed his church to continue this, um, this very important ceremony, it was never meant to become a mindless ritual. It was never meant to just become something that we hurriedly stick on to the end of a service and rush through in the last five minutes while we're thinking about beating everybody else to S&S cafeteria. That's not how the Lord's Supper should be taken. Jesus warned of doing mindless ritual things when right before he told us how to pray in what we call the Lord's Prayer. He said, don't just go on babbling like the heathens do. There's repeated phrases. And, and so, you know, I was talking with one of our men recently. Um, how, do we, how do we guard against that? Uh, I don't know how many communion sermons I've brought, but it's a whole lot. And so as I face each one, and I think about you during my preparation time, I look around, I can, I can picture you in your seats I think about what, what you may be going through or your children or your parents or whatever. And I think, how can I take this very familiar message and bring it in a way that is fresh and new to people? How is that possible? Well, it's, it's not really possible for me. And the thing that I have to keep reminding myself of is that kind of what I focused on last week is that pastors don't need to come up with something clever. God's word alone, by itself, has all the power it needs to change our lives, if we've heard it once or a thousand times. If you're saved, I bet you anything, you never get tired of hearing the good news of the gospel. And so I just had to kind of put myself in the right place again, preparing this message, because I really was thinking, I don't, I don't even know what to say anymore. And as I read through these scriptures it just became clear to me, Phil, just shut up. You don't need to say anything on your own. Just point them to the scriptures. But I want to warn you that we need to, not just me, all of us need to remain mindful, vigilant, that we never allow this ceremony, whatever you want to call it, of, of the Lord's Supper to become routine. You ever been driving somewhere like 30 or 40 minutes and you pull up and you don't even remember driving there? That's kind of terrifying. <laughs> but it happens all the time. Let's never, ever take this lightly and go through a communion service and walk out to our car and go, I don't even remember being in there. I don't even remember what we did. This is critically important. This thing called the Lord's Supper can indeed be turned into 
uh, a mindless event. The Apostle Paul had to address this problem with the Corinthian church. They had turned communion into a selfish, drunken party and had become a disgrace and a terrible testimony to the name of Christ. So Paul wrote the letter that we know as 1 Corinthians to correct them and remind them what communion was supposed to be. And by explaining it to them, he's explaining it to us. And so let's sit up and see what Paul has to say in this very stern letter to the church in Corinth. Normally, people don't read the whole thing. Here in 1 Corinthians 11, they usually pick up in verse 23 and just read a couple of verses. I want to give us the whole context today. So look at 1 Corinthians 11, starting in verse 17. It says, But in the following instructions, I do not praise you, because when you come together, it's not for the better, but for the worse. First of all, when you come together as a church, I hear that there are divisions among you, and in part, I believe it. For there must also be factions or, or differences or even disagreements among you, so that those who are approved or approved by God may be recognized among you. Verse 20, when you come together in one place, it is not to eat the Lord's Supper. For when you eat, each one goes ahead with his own meal. One goes hungry, another gets drunk. What? Do you not have houses to eat and drink in? Or do you despise the church of God and shame those who have nothing? What shall I say to you? Shall I praise you in this? I do not praise you. Verse 23, for I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus on the night he was betrayed took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, this is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way also, he took the cup after supper, saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim or show the Lord's death until he comes. Verse 27, therefore, whoever eats this bread or drinks this cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty of the body and blood of the Lord. Wow. But let a man examine himself, and so let him eat of the bread and drink of the cup. For whoever eats and drinks in an unworthy manner, without discerning or recognizing or remembering the body, the body of Christ, he eats and drinks judgment on himself. Verse 30, for this reason, many of you are weak and sick, and many sleep, many have died. For if we would judge ourselves, we would not be judged. But when we are judged, we are chastened, we're disciplined by the Lord, so that we may not be condemned with the world. So then, my brothers, when you come together to eat, wait for one another. If anyone is hungry, let him eat at home, so that when you come together, it will not be for judgment. And the other matters I will set in order when I come. Boy, that last sentence is a thunderous sentence, isn't it? It reminds me of the, the rare occasions when I would disobey in church as a little boy. And my mom would lean forward and look down the pew, and she'd whisper the words, you're going to get a whipping when we get home. <laughs> it was like this. Those matters, I'm going I'm to set in order when, when we get home. This is a pretty strong rebuke from the Apostle Paul. This is not a warm, cozy, fuzzy letter. But it needed to be strong because this church was involved in some terrible things. You read the other chapters, it, it makes your, your blood run cold what the church was involved in. 
And this was a church Paul started, by the way. And not the least of those problems they had created was they were distorting the Lord's Supper. Now, I pray that we will never distort and abuse the Lord's Supper like this church was doing. But as I said, there's still a real danger that we need to watch out for. And that is that we never take communion and in doing so fail to recognize and remember the body of Christ. Paul teaches several key things about communion here in these verses, and I want to co cover some of those with you briefly. I, I hope that this won't come across as too dry or technical or mechanical, uh, but sometimes I think we need to go back to the basics and get a refresher. Who is the coach who every year at the beginning of the year with his new team would hold up a football and say, gentlemen, this is a football. Uh, coach of the Green Bay Packers, I can't think of his name. Vince Lombardi. Yeah, yeah, there you go. So every year he would do that with, with the new team. Um, of course, they knew it was a football. But what, what was he saying was, we're getting back to the basics. We're going to start there. We're going to build from there. So a few things that stand out in this text. First of all, we should come to the Lord's Supper with thanksgiving. That's our first point. Thanksgiving. In verse 24, after Jesus took the bread, it says, he took the bread, and when he had given thanks, Jesus gave thanks. Interesting. I remember uh, my daughter asked me one time when she was really little, Daddy, why do we pray before we eat? This is one of the verses I took her to. I said, if, if Jesus paused to thank his Father, how much more should we? And when it says he gave thanks here, the original Greek word is eucharisteo. Eucharistio. Does that sound familiar to anybody? That's the word uh, from which some churches uh, refer to the Lord's Supper. They call it not the Lord's Supper, not communion. They call it Eucharist. Eucharist is a Greek word that simply means thanksgiving or gratitude. Every time we take communion, it should be with a heart that is overflowing with gratitude for all that God has accomplished on our behalf. The, the bread and the cup symbolize the body and the blood of the Lord Jesus who was nailed to the cross in our place. I mean, we think about this again. He took our sin. He became sin for us, the Bible says. I don't even know where to start processing that. The holy, sinless Son of God said, no, 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 Father, no, don't punish them. Punish me. All that sin that they've ever committed in their whole life, in all the history of the world, unimaginable. Father, take all those sins and put them on me as though I had done them myself. And then punish me. Pour out your wrath on me for those sins. How in the world could we ever hold the bread and hold the cup in our hand and think about that and fail to have a heart full of gratitude. My hope is that each time you take this meal, it's with an ever-growing sense of um, thanksgiving. Gratitude for the grace that God has shown to you. For the distance that he has gone to rescue you. For the patience he's had with you all these years. For the mercies that are new to you every morning. We must be mindful to never forget 
that one of the main things the Lord's Supper should stir in us is a heart of thanksgiving. Secondly, these verses highlight that this communion is about fellowship. Five times in these verses, Paul says, when you come together, he uses that phrase five times. And so one of the core elements of fellowship is, uh, how could I say it? I mean, proximity. It's being in the same place at the same time. It's being together. It's nearness. Now, of course, you can have fellowship with friends over the phone or by email or text or whatever, but come on. That's not the same. It's not the same at all. This is why I hope you'll always remember one of the very first things I ever taught you as a church, and that is the church is not a building. The church is not an organization. Look around in this room. That's the church. The church is you. And the church has a very difficult time truly being the church when we're scattered, when we're not together. One of the challenges for churches this past year and a half was the lack of proximity, (laughs) the lack of physical togetherness that people desperately needed with each other. When we talk about fellowship, proximity is inferred. Coming together is, is implied, but that's not all that fellowship is, and this is uh, often missed here in these verses. I would say fellowship is one part being together and one part being together in unity. Unity. Paul said to the church in Corinth, when all of you come together, it's not for the better. It's actually for the worse. So it's possible to come together and it not be a good thing. They had proximity, but they didn't have unity. Now we have to be careful. I'll remind you again, when the Bible calls us to unity, it's not calling us to uniformity. It's not saying we all have to dress the same and like the same things. That's uniformity. Those are how cults are started. You know, you all got to shave your head and wear a white robe and all of that. That's uniformity. That's not unity. Here's the kind of unity we're called to. Here's one example in Ephesians chapter 4. Very familiar verses. Paul says, make every effort to keep the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. Now, let me pause quickly. Why does he say make every effort? Because it's hard. I don't get along with y'all all the time. You don't get along with each other all the time. It takes effort. It's not something that's just magically going to happen with a sprinkle of fairy dust. Make every effort. You know what that means? It means putting yourself down. It means putting yourself to the back and allowing others to get the best, to be first. It's effort. Make every effort to keep the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. Listen, this is so beautiful. You read words like this and it's just like, Man, God inspired the Apostle Paul so profoundly. Listen to this sentence. There is one body and one spirit, just as you were called in one hope of your calling, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all who is above all and through all and in you all. Wow. I couldn't write that if I had a hundred years on my own to think of it. When we come together for communion, it's, it's much more than physical proximity. It's the spiritual unity we have. The spiritual unity that means even when we disagree about minor things, 
we can still be one in the spirit of Christ. This is why I'm never going to allow this church to major on the minors. I have people all the time who want to fight me or argue me, uh, with me over <clears throat> predestination and election or pre-tribulation or post-tribulation. I go, man, if you got time to worry about that stuff, then uh, I, I, I just got nothing for you. See, those are the things that split churches. And they're, I'm not going to say they're unimportant. I'm going to say they're of lesser importance than the gospel. Paul said we preach Christ crucified. Crucified, buried, and risen again. That's what the church should be focused on. We can disagree on some of those other things. We truly can. And we can still be one in Christ. I truly think we're going to get to heaven. Um, I'll just use me as an example. And uh, God's going to go, Phil, you, you tried hard, buddy, but boy, you had some things wrong. And I'll be like, me? No, I won't. But <laughs> See, that's how we all feel. We all, we all will fight for our position on things. We don't know that when it's all over, we're going to be dead wrong on some of it. So let's focus on the essentials. Let's major on the majors and minor on the minor. Someone said the main thing is to keep the main thing the main thing. When a church has that kind of unity to where even in their differences, they are one in Christ, then every person will be looking out for the needs of others far more than their own needs. And that's where the Corinthian church had failed. They were coming together as one body, but they weren't united in Christ. They had a meal together, but some of them were <clears throat> stuffing themselves on the food while overlooking others, and they were even getting drunk. So some people were leaving full, satisfied. Others were leaving empty and unsatisfied and feeling left out. I'll tell you, whenever people in a church start elbowing each other to try to get what they want out of the church, they might leave fulfilled, but I promise you others are going to leave unfulfilled. So we need to be careful about that. We should never, how would you say it? We should never belly up to the table, physically or spiritually speaking. Our communion fellowship should be a fellowship of unity. Unity. I'm very thankful for this church, by the way. Very thankful. We have so few problems here. I can't tell you what that means to me. And if you're here to cause problems... It's not going to go well for you because we truly guard this here. We guard it. Well, thirdly, communion must be a time of remembrance. This comes from verses 24 and 25. This is probably the most well-known passage here. It says, and when he, Jesus, had given thanks, he broke the bread and said, this is my body, which is for you. Do this, what? In remembrance of me. In the same way also, he took the cup after supper, saying, this cup is the new covenant. And one of these days, I'm going to focus on that phrase, the new covenant. Wow. This is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it. How? In remembrance of me. The scripture everywhere commands us to remember. Throughout the Old Testament, we've seen this in our journey through the Bible already so far Throughout the Old Testament, God told his people to remember what it was like when they were slaves back in Egypt. Stop what you're doing and think about that. Think about what your life was like when you were under the hand of that harsh taskmaster. He told them repeatedly to remember how he had led them all the way through the wilderness. 
How he had provided everything they needed all along the way. How he had protected them from their enemies. How he had given them food. How he had given them water from the rock. How he had made sure that their clothes and shoes never wore out that entire time. God actually created festivals and customs where the people would gather together to remind themselves who they were and where they were before God saw fit to redeem them. And the Lord has given us this ceremony of taking communion together. And one of the main purposes of us doing this is so that we will remember him. Remember him and all that he has done for us. Listen, there's, I want to try to say this in the right way, but there's, there's something life-changing about remembering. There's something supernatural, I would submit to you, even about remembering, calling to mind all the goodness and blessing of God from the past. It changes you when we pause and remember who God is and all that he has done. And I'll tell, I'll tell you a little secret. In those times when you feel far away from God, in those times you wonder if God still cares about you, in those times when you are convinced that God has lost track of you and messed up the plans in your life, listen, it's not because your theology has failed, but rather because your memory has. You've forgotten what it was like to wake up every day not forgiven to go through every day bearing the weight and guilt and shame of your own sin. You've forgotten what it was like to be under the wrath of God. You've forgotten what it was like to hear the clock ticking down towards judgment day when you would be judged for your sin. You've forgotten who you used to be and where you would be right now if God hadn't reached down and saved you. What you need to do in those times is not get more theology. What you need to do in those times is to pause and remember and reflect upon the incredibly high price that God paid to redeem you from the kingdom of darkness. What you need to do in those times is remember that now you are a child of the king. Your sins are completely forgiven. That you wake up every morning with new mercies. And as we prepare for communion this morning... I want you to consciously, intentionally think on that. Think right now what you used to be. Think right now where you would be today. Christ had not come and died in your place. Wow, what a mess we would be. Communion is a time of remembrance. Fourth, communion is a time of proclamation. This is so often missed. Verse 26, for as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. And proclaiming the Lord's death is not just talking about his actual death on the cross. It's much more. Proclaiming his death is to share, to proclaim what his death on the cross has accomplished for you. We see this all throughout Paul's writings. The word proclaim simply means to announce, to declare, to show, to make known. And here's one thing I notice. Whenever someone in the Bible had a genuine encounter with God, they couldn't keep their mouth shut about it afterwards. The pastor didn't have to get up and pound the pulpit and prompt them to go out and share their faith. No, man, they couldn't keep quiet. 
The shepherds went to see baby Jesus, and it says, uh, they left glorifying and praising God for all that they had heard and seen. The woman at the well was forgiven by Jesus, and she ran back and told her whole town. Peter and John, in Acts 4 and 5, there were arrested and brought before the Sanhedrin, this terrifying, intimidating council. And they were threatened. And the council said to them, we charge you never again to speak in the name of Jesus. And Peter and John said, fellas, sorry, we can't help but speaking about what we have seen and heard. And I would submit to you that what Christ has done for us is just as worthy as enthusiastic proclamation. By taking communion, we're proclaiming that we've been saved through the death of Christ. But it's not just for in here. We also need to proclaim out there. When you leave here, keep on proclaiming, keep on declaring, keep on sharing, keep on showing and telling others how Christ has made you new. Folks, the death and resurrection of Christ is the greatest news in human history. Don't keep it to yourselves. Imagine, imagine if you discovered the cure for cancer. Imagine treating yourself and then putting that cure back in the drawer and never sharing it with anyone. Wow. No, you wouldn't do that. You'd run up and down the halls of the hospitals, giving it to everyone. You'd get on the news, you'd tell everyone, I can make as much as you need. Everyone in the world can be cured. Why? Because you know that what you've got is life-changing. It's great news. Sometimes life is so busy, we just... It's a blur. We go from day to day, week to week, month to month, and it's like, wow, I don't even know what's going on. What, what, what did we do last week? What do we have to do next week? And we, we rarely take time to stop and remember that we've been given the cure for hell and an empty life. We've been given the cure for that. How excited are we to share that with those who need it? So as we take this communion in a moment, we're we're proclaiming what Christ has done for us on the cross. But I want to encourage you as you walk out these doors today, say, God, I, I may not have the gift of evangelism, so I don't know how to go about this exactly, but God, would you put me in the path of people? And just in my own natural way, the way that you've wired me, would you just make it impossible for me to keep my mouth shut about what you've done? You know what that looks like for some people? It looks like um, baking a cake and taking it to someone. It looks like um, going over and helping a sick neighbor with their yard work or your pastor. <laughs> Showing the gospel can happen in so many ways. Don't box God in on this. Say, God, just uh, allow me to proclaim what you've done for me with those that you bring across my path. Finally, number five, the fifth thing communion should stir in us is expectation. Again, this is easy to miss in verse 26. For as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death. How long? Until he comes. And you know what? Hidden right there in plain sight is one of the many promises that he's coming back for us. He's coming back. Communion isn't just a time of looking back in remembrance. 
What's so often missed in communion is it's also a time of looking ahead to his coming in expectation. See, the Bible says that we are the bride of Christ. And in the same way that a bride eagerly awaits her wedding day, we should be eagerly awaiting the coming of our bridegroom. Now, I can't really talk to you men about this, but you ladies know what it was like to be engaged. You knew the exact number of days, probably hours, between now and your wedding day. You told everybody. Everywhere you went, you stood like this. You know. <laughs> right? You were picking out dresses and flowers and cakes and venues. And I mean, you were, you were living every day with a sense of expectation for the coming of your groom. How much more? Should all of us who are engaged to Christ be looking for his coming? I tell you, more now than ever. Just the other day, I, I was outside and it was you know, one of those beautiful fall days. And I just had so much on my mind that was like, what did, what did the kids used to say? It was harshing my mellow. I, was, I don't know what I'm saying. It was something like that. One of those cool phrases that I don't understand. <laughs> But all the things, just all this negative stuff. Yeah, I know, I know. I think they're still saying that. They Okay, well, that's great. I remember one time in a sermon, I did something like, I don't think so. And boy, my daughter came to me after she said, don't ever, ever do that again. So... We are the bride of Christ. Are we excited for that wedding day? So I was, you know, I was outside. Everything was beautiful about the day, except for my mind. It was just overwhelmed with junk and pressures and thoughts and problems. And I just kind of paused and I looked up. I said, come, Lord Jesus, <laughs> come. Now, that's kind of a wimpy way out. I understand that's in my heart more now than ever. I'm done with the world. I don't know about you. I've had all I want. All I want. And it's just getting worse. It's getting crazier. I'm longing for that day when the trumpet sounds and he comes in clouds of glory. I'm longing for that day. Communion should be a reminder of our engagement. It should be a moment that fills us with expectation for the day when Christ will come again and take us to that great marriage supper of the Lamb that we heard about so beautifully a couple of weeks ago from David. Jesus himself is eagerly awaiting that. Um, during the, the Last Supper, he said in Matthew 26, 29, he said, I tell you, I will not drink again of this fruit of the vine until that day when I drink it with you in my Father's kingdom. And this verse is telling us plainly, I'm coming back again, and I'm going to take you with me. You're going to be with me in my Father's kingdom, and we're going to eat this meal together again. Each time we have communion, it's, it's sort of a rehearsal dinner for the wedding that's going to come. And that's a day we should all be looking forward to. So just to recap these five things, to let you see them there on the screen, communion is a time of thanksgiving. It's a time of fellowship, it's a time of remembrance and proclamation and expectation. 
And I pray that as we take these simple truths to heart, that we'll never lose sight of the importance and meaning and significance of the Lord's Supper, because there is a stern warning in this chapter. This is actually point six. I didn't put it on the slides because I didn't think we'd have time to give it adequate time and dive into it. But if you want to put down a six point, it's examination. Examination. It says we should examine ourselves to make sure we're not taking communion in an unworthy manner. Now, again, there's a lot of misunderstanding on what this means. Yes, we, we should repent of all known sin before coming to this table. You better believe it. Yes, we should get up and walk across the room or step out to the foyer and make a phone call and make things right with someone if they're not before we come to this table. You better believe it. But it's saying much more than that because in the context of this chapter, the unworthy manner that Paul is speaking of here is doing what the Corinthian church was doing. It's failing to take the Lord's Supper seriously. It's turning it into a drunken feast. It's taking communion without discerning or remembering the body of Christ. That's the specific warning here, and that's the real danger. It's more than just personal reflection. The warning is, do not take this lightly. When you do this, remember the body. Remember the body. So as we come to the table now, I pray that we would do so with a heart of thanksgiving. I pray we would do so in true fellowship and unity. I pray that we would do it remembering what Christ has done for us. And as we're doing this, we're proclaiming his death. And I pray that all of this will fill us with the fresh expectation of his coming again. You've been listening to a broadcast from LifePoint Church in Greenville, South Carolina. If this ministry has touched your life in some way, we would love to hear from you. Just visit our website at www.lifepointsc.org for more information. Or, if you prefer to reach us by letter, you can write to us at P.O. Box 27036, Greenville, South Carolina, 29616, USA. Until next time, may God bless you as you continue to follow Him. of my heart.